Hello and welcome to the Upper Bowl GM podcast. It is Nick Sararis. It is Tuesday when you are list when you will probably be listening to this. I don't think anyone's gonna be listening to this in the middle of the night on Monday. So hope everyone's week is off to a nice start. It was a very, very fun weekend of football. Yesterday's episode went through, ran through the storylines I took away, the main takeaways I had going into the Super Bowl. The beautiful thing about the bye week between the Super Bowl and the the conference title games and the build-up to the Super Bowl is that we got a little flexibility as far as what we're going to talk about on the show this week. Today's episode, so much fun. I, it was nice catching up with Wally Matthews, longtime sports writer in the New York media, wrote for The Post, The Daily News, The New York Times at one point, wrote for Yahoo!, He's working on a boxing book right now. We He didn't really want to get too much into his book because, you know, still working on the book. But it was a really good talk. We spent a little bit of time about stories that were in the news when we recorded. There are a few allusions to the day we recorded. We co- recorded on Friday, um, January 22nd. There's a few allusions to Hank Aaron passing away at that time. Yeah, I recorded this on Friday, had to edit it, put it together, and then, you know, Put it in up in a timely fashion. Can't have this up on Monday. Football comes first on storylines. But guests-wise, Wally was a pleasure to have. Really good talk. The important stories, the things we're dealing with in the sports media world now, the types of jobs that are still out there that are desirable, the state of media when we talk about things like the partner league relationship where a company like ESPN is a news organization but also has a vested interest in the success of the leagues it has on its channel they are partners they both have there's a conflict of interest for ESPN to say it's a news organization and the television partners with the NFL the MLB the NBA college sports all of that and a little bit of a little bit more. We talked a bit about how to cover situations like the Jared Porter story with the Mets. We talked about the player columnist relationship in relation to Jake Voratek and James Skielski, the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer reporter who got blown up on a couple of weeks ago. Really good chat. Before I get over there, got to remind everyone, please help grow the show. Join the conversation going to try and put together a mailbag episode of the show in the not too distant future probably after the super bowl when there's a little more leeway and we only have hockey and basketball to talk about and we'll have a little bit of soccer i'm gonna ask someone to come on to talk about the state of liverpool because i am a liverpool supporter but for the sake of my misery i'd like to have some company i've got a few ideas of who i'd like to ask so i'll get to that soon but yeah please help grow the show Throw a follow if you're listening on Spotify. Subscribe if you're on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review. Rate five stars. Spread the word. Tell someone else about the show. Maybe they want to come on and complain about their team being stupid. This is an organic community. I'm reaching out to a lot of people and getting good results, getting a lot of nice feedback from the people I do talk to who have listened. We're growing the show, people. It's an interesting time to be a sports fan. There's never been more information never been more access to understanding of what makes good teams and what makes bad teams. It's all out there waiting to be taken. Oh, and of course, if you're not already, please follow the blog, Gotham SN. Football blog this week, Ranger blog this week. I promise, as soon as I'm done editing, I'm going to start working on an NFL blog in relation to the Super Bowl. I will see you guys on the other side of the drop of Wally.
Welcome on a college professor of mine, a decorated, accomplished sports writer, the great Wally Matthews. How are you doing? Okay, decorated. You made me sound like a Christmas tree a little bit. <laughs> you've got you've got a lot of stuff on your resume, and it's why I wanted to have you come on. Just from being around for a long time. Hey, compilers get to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> That's compilers? right. Don Stutton, may he rest in peace. Yeah, right? compilers classic compiler. They get to the Hall of Fame for a reason. They mm -hmm. have a role. So before we get into the re the main reason I wanted to have you on, I want to start here because this is one of those things who people who aren't in the news business, who don't have a journalism background, don't really get is the difference between your general col your general sports writer, your news person, and a columnist. Because a lot of people, when they open the new, if they still open a physical newspaper, mm. they, they don't see the difference between them. They see it all as part of the one sports section. And what are the differences? Just as well, the, the obvious difference is, you know, a columnist is written, is paid to write his opinion. You know, I'm, I, I was paid to give you not only what my opinion was on an issue, but my perspective on it, my experience having covered a lot of things. Uh, you know, I wasn't a straight news writer at that point. I was in the beginning. Uh, I think a lot of people have the same problem, Nick, um, when they read, um, you know, the political section of the newspaper. Yeah. They don't know an op-ed from, from uh, a news story. I think a lot of people have that problem when they watch TV, when they watch cable TV news. You know, am I watching news now or am I watching opinion? Um, you know, obviously it should be clearly delineated, I think, because sometimes, you know, you do want to make that distinction. You want people to know, hey, you know, this is this man's opinion or this woman's opinion, and it's based upon... I mean, to me, the best columns are based upon fact, based upon solid uh, uh, background. Got to have evidence. You can't just, you know, go off half cocked and, and come out with an opinion on something, which unfortunately a lot of columnists do these days, especially on the internet. Uh, but I think it's important to let people know, you know, this here is the news and here is the perspective on the news. And that's what a columnist, a good columnist does. What are the differences in the goals and objectives of each? Because they both fulfill a different responsibility. Well, I think it's obvious, you know, the, the, the news reporter's objective is to tell you the story in as unbiased a fashion as he or she can, right? This is what happened yesterday. You know, you make up your mind about it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your Ranger jersey back. So the Rangers, Rangers beat the Flyers last night, two to one, you know, two goals by so-and-so, 37 saves by, by Lundquist. You know, that's straight reporting. This is what happened. The columnist's job is to tell you why it happened, you know, and why, whether or not it was a good thing or a bad thing, if it's something that uh, you can take solace in or something you should be worried about. And here are the reasons why, not just because I think so, but because in the past, this is what has happened. Or behind the scenes, you may not know this is what's really going on, you know, with the Rangers right now. Um, those are the kind of things that I think in modern news writing have been kind of incorporated into game stories as well, which I think is part of the confusion, you know, where people get confused about, am I reading opinion or am I reading news? I think that editors have wanted um, their 
beat reporters to, to kind of encourage and, and incorporate some of that stuff in as well, you know, some analysis, because let's face it, you know, the 24 hour news cycle, uh, ESPN, Fox Sports, you know, the talk radio has pretty much made the game story obsolete. So you got to go a little bit further, which has also made the columnist job a little tougher because the beat writer is handling some of this. You got to go, you know, to an even uh, a greater, um, you know, you have to step outside the box a little bit further there. But um, I think the line has blurred somewhat between the news writer and the columnist, but I think they still have very, very uh, clearly defined roles. How are your relationships different with your subject matter, depending on whether you're a news writer or a beat reporter in terms of what you need to be able to get from sources is when you're doing a game story, as opposed to something a little more big picture column wise? Yeah, treme tremendously. And, and I learned this late in my career because, you know, I had been a columnist before I was ever a beat writer. I had been a boxing beat writer, which is different from a baseball beat writer because you're not with the team. There's no team. You know, you're not with the team every day. You would see the same fighters, you know, over the course of a year, but you weren't with them all the time and you didn't have the same kind of a relationship. Uh, when you're a columnist, you're pretty much hit and run. I hate to say it, you really do. I mean, I, I used to say that when I was a columnist, general columnist, my view of, you know, like what was going on with the Yankees would be to like looking through the Venetian blinds. I would just see a small snapshot of what happened on that day. And now I'm writing it as if I'm, I'm an expert, you know, and this is what's going on with the Yankees, even though I've only seen a sliver of their season here. When you're the beat writer, you're there every day and your perspective obviously is different because you know everybody, you know everything that's going on, you know things you can't write. You know, you know, things that are happening behind the scenes, you know, things that are happening between players and management, you know, things that are happening between players and players that maybe you can't write. Uh, I think you're a little more constrained as a beat writer because you do want to kind of keep everybody friendly, if not friendly, at least cooperative with you throughout the season because you got to live with these guys. You know, you really do you spend more time with them during the baseball season, I learned, than you do with your family. I mean, you're with them 12 hours a day for nine months. You don't spend that much time with your family. Uh, columnists, you know, might drop in at a baseball game twice a week, you know, and get his little snapshot or her little snapshot of what they're seeing, write the story, get out, don't really have to face anybody right away unless you're coming back the next day. I mean, the best columnists, if they wrote a tough column, would be back in the clubhouse the next day just in case anybody, you know, has a, has a beef and you need to explain something. Uh, but for the, for the most part, there's less accountability, quite honestly, and, uh, and less access just by the nature of the, of the way you do the job. So uh, before we get to the news point, which the, the news part of this, because there was a st story that happened last week where a columnist got blown up on by a player. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was how do you manage a relationship where someone is being difficult? Like, I don't know if you saw it, but last week Kyrie came back from his hiatus and he right. was at the Zoom. He was at the Zoom press conference, slouched right. at his desk like a high school kid, giving pretty non-cooperative answers. Obviously, not wanting to be there. How do you manage that kind of situation where you obviously know the guy doesn't want to do this, but you still have to write a story? Yeah, you know what? I had more trouble doing that when I was younger, dealing with that. Than as I got older, I learned that not to take it personally, and that. There's no way you can't force anybody to answer your questions. You know, I mean, look, they all have an obligation and actually, you know, a concrete obligation to yeah. the league that they have to do it. 
um, but you can't force them to be expansive. You can't afford, you can't really force them to be cooperative. You just do the best with what you got there. And if it means that uh, you're going to criticize them in a column because of that, fine. I mean, the fans hate it when you do because the fans feel the same way the players do. They feel like they don't they don't want the players talking to you anyway for whatever their reason. Um, I mean, it's just it's a it's a it's a it's a hazard of the business. And quite honestly, you know, when I when I was a boxing columnist, Mike Tyson didn't talk to me for about six years. He was the heavyweight champion of the world. It didn't matter. I didn't really need him to talk to me. You know, I talked to people around him. I'd pay attention to what was going on. I made sure I was up on everything that was happening in his life and in his business in boxing. And uh, I was able to write fine without quoting him. Never had to. I mean, if I needed, you know, to get a quote from him, I could always get something out of a press conference. But I, I never felt that I needed the player to talk to me to write a good column, you know. Um, and that's because you have to have a solid background about what you're writing about. Um, now, if you're depending on a player's quotes to write your column, you're probably not going about your business in the right way anyway. You know, that's not really, you know, I can say it better than they're going to say it, you know. And, you know, as I said, you are constrained by they are human beings. You can't afford, you can't put a gun to a guy's head and say, hey, give me a good answer on this question. So. Yeah, it, it's complicated because both people have a professional responsibility to fulfill when they're there. The player, most players, I won't say most players, but some guys just, they don't like that part of the job and they're obviously if they're not uncomfortable they just don't want to be there which brings me to the thing that happened last week with the flyers where mike sielski he's a sports columnist i think it's the philly inquirer still yep. and he over the years he's written a few columns specifically about this player he's overpaid he doesn't really he's not worth as much as the flyers are paying him and it's a, a hindrance to the direction of the team that kind of thing He's occasionally fired off a joking tweet, like, can we trade this guy for Olympic athlete X, that kind of thing. And last Friday, after the Flyers won the game, he asked him, a, he asked Jake Voracek, a player on the Flyers, how's it been so far trying to get into a routine because of everything so weird? And Voracek told, called him a weasel, called him gutless, that kind of thing. Right. First, what do you do in that kind of situation where you're put on the spot and you're made to look like the asshole? Well, you got to try to keep your professionalism and it's not always easy. And believe me, I wasn't always successful at it. Uh, I mean, we're all human beings and, uh, you know, it does come a point where somebody will push your buttons and, and you'll snap back. Now, Sielski, I've known him a long time. He's a very, very professional guy, terrific writer. Uh, but when you do, when you are critical of a particular player, there's going to be resentment. There's no doubt about it, you know, and you got to, I mean, it's a mark of his professionalism, Sielski's, I'm saying, in that, you know, he would ask this guy a question knowing that he's likely to get that kind of a response. You know, um, I mean, I had the same things with Tyson at press conferences. You know, I knew he didn't like me, I didn't like him. And if I asked him a question, he was most likely gonna give me a blast of something, you know, but you still gotta ask the question. Um, you know, I, it's it's tough to say, it's, it all depends. Like certain players are different with yeah. criticism than others. I saw, you know, the, the, the incident with Sealski and uh, I mean, it's kind of a, <clears throat> it's kind of a bullying tactic by the player because you do have the, you've got the pulpit at that point and you could say whatever you want. And the, the reporter is probably not going to come back at you because it's not going to look good. It's not going to sound good. We're trained not to make ourselves into the story. Um, so, I mean, 
I, I can't say. I don't think the player came off very well on that. I thought he looked pretty bad. But then again, I'm speaking with the bias of a journalist. There could very well be, you know, Flyers fans sitting out there going, yeah, man, get him, get him. This guy, this guy sucks, you know, and uh, we see that all the time. How do you make sure a guy feels that they're being covered fairly in that kind of situation where if it's you're going to. It's hard. I mean, what do you do? Do you go up and say, hey, uh, I'm, I'm going to write a column tomorrow that says you're overpaid. You know, I hope you're not going to take offense to it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or you see him the next day and go, hey, you know, I don't know if you saw my column today, but I wrote that you're overpaid. How do you like that? You know, I mean, that's actually a fair way to do it. You know, just level with the guy and say, hey, this is what I wrote. And this is why, you know, uh, but let's face it. Most people are not going to do that. You know, yeah. most reporters are not going to do that. It is intimidating. You know, uh, these guys could hurt a lot of reporters. And, um, you know, by in a perfect world, would, would a columnist always go up to a player before he wrote a critical column and, and tell him, yeah, absolutely. And try to get his response and say, hey, this is what I'm going to write. What, you know, what do you have to say to that? Absolutely. In a perfect world. Um, there's a couple of things that work against that. First of all, you can't always get the player. All right. Second of all, sometimes you're not sure what you're going to write until you sit down and the player is no longer in front of you. You know, um, and thirdly, there is the... Um, there is the problem of access. I hate to say it, but you know, a lot of guys would rather not a player know that you wrote that because you want access to him next time. And is, is that Weasley? It might be, it might be. And I'm not saying Sealski, you know, I don't agree at all that Sealski's a Weasley. He's not. Um, but I can understand how a player could feel that way. Now, back in the eighties, when there was no social media, it was much easier to write those columns and the player would never know it. You know, whether the player would know it because a friend, quote unquote, a friend or a family member would say, hey, you got to see what this guy wrote about you. In fact, I had um, a similar situation when I was covering the Mets in the 90s. Um, I had written a column about uh, Ricky Henderson, who didn't run out uh, a game ending double play with the tying run at third base. Right. If he had been, and this is the guy who stole more bases than anybody in history, he could easily have beaten out this double play ball. He kind of loafed it and the Mets lost the game. And I wrote it. And um, the next day, a friend, quote unquote, <laughs> Bobby Bonilla, the friend, actually took a copy of the column to Ricky Henderson and said, that guy over there wrote this about you. So, you know, we had some words outside the dugout. But um, for the most part, players didn't have the access to see what we were writing about them in those days. Now everything is out there within seconds. You know, and also we don't very often we don't do ourselves a favor by tweeting things about players. You know, obviously Sealski, you know, has tweeted some wise ass things. I once tweeted a thing about Java Chamberlain that he saw. <laughs> All right. Um, I can't oh, it was when Brian Cashman had jumped out of a plane and broke his ankle or something. I tweeted something like if he had landed on Java, he you know, he he wouldn't have gotten hurt. Of course, Java saw it in the clubhouse, you know, it's like, what's wrong with you? That's not funny. I said, It is funny. Come on, man. But he didn't think so. And years ago, those are the kind of things you would say in the press box as just a wise ass throwaway and nobody would ever hear it. Now you tweet it and everybody sees it. So uh, we, we don't help ourselves with things like that. Um, but your original question was, how do you how do you get the respect of a player? Probably the easiest way is to make your criticisms fair, you know. You know, don't don't go into areas that you shouldn't be going into. Don't make it personal. If you can, if, you know, if you have numbers to back up that Alex Rodriguez can hit with runners on second and third and nobody out, 
you know, and you, and that's what you write. He can't argue with you. You know, if you write that, you know, uh, Mike Tyson can't win the big one and you can show, you know, six examples of when he had a big fight and, and fell apart, he can't argue with you. If you are just going to take, you know, shots at somebody because you don't like their character or because whatever your reasons are, and there's no real background, background to it, then, you know, the player has, a, has definitely has a beef. It's a complicated relationship to walk because you do have to see these people every day or a couple times a week, especially right. for a columnist, because you're giving your opinion. And sometimes you have to be harsh with your opinion. Yeah, the opinion's it, not always going to be favorable. Yeah. You know? You know, I had things like this with the Yankees, but I, I always tried not. And by that point, don't forget, I, it was later in my career. I was in my 50s and, you know, I was a little bit more mature and I, I understood how, you know, things I wrote could hurt people. And um, I remember one time, you know, every year the Yankees would have like a fifth starter competition. It'd always be the same four guys involved. It's like David Phelps, Adam Warren. Uh, they were like two other guys. I don't know. So anyway... David Phelps had pitched pretty well in spring training. And I wrote a column saying, you know, he seems to have jumped out ahead of everybody else. And, uh, and I didn't even, and I just didn't mention Adam Warren for whatever reason. And David Phelps called me aside in the clubhouse the next day. And he said, you know, my wife read your column. As soon as he said that, I was like, oh God, all right. He goes, my wife read your column and uh, she thought that you were insulting to Adam. I said, really? He goes, yeah, you never mentioned him. You know, you made it seem like he has no chance. Uh, you know, and, and you know what? I said to him, you know what? You're right. I, I should have. You're absolutely right. And I don't know if I would have done this when I was in my 30s, but I went over to Adam Warren. And I said, listen, I don't even know if you know about this or not, but, uh, you know, I wrote a column yesterday about David and I didn't mention you. And he looked at me like I was nuts. <laughs> He's like, so what? I said, well, Dave thought that I was... Um, you know, that, that I kind of slighted you a little bit because now don't worry about it. <laughs> and we were fine after that. But what, but my point is that when you get old, you start to see that, yes, this could be hurtful to somebody and it helps to go over and just say something, even though this, you know, had no impact on Adam Warren, did not care at all. I felt better that, you know, having, having done it. Okay. Transitioning a little bit here, the Jared Porter story broke late in the middle of the night, Tuesday night, I want to say, this of this week. And it's a complicated line, right. that kind of thing. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about dealing with sensitive information like that in the world of sports. Because typically when you think like, you know, sensitive information, you're thinking like Pentagon Papers level of seriousness. This story is still seriousness. Absolutely. It's a different degree of seriousness because in the sports world, it does get the reputation of just being the boys club, that kind of thing, where mm -hmm. everybody's kind of all on the up and up. Everyone knows each other. There's a lot of everybody hires people they know in the sports world because it's a self-sustaining system. Right. Talk to me a little bit about how you handle that kind of sensitive information where, how do you go about verifying that kind of information where you know you're going to have to ask people in other organizations uncomfortable questions to make sure, first of all, that this is true. And then how do you write that kind of story? <laughs> Very carefully. You know, I had a similar story, um, 30 some odd years ago with Mike Tyson when um, his his mother-in-law and his sister-in-law came to me and said that he was beating up his wife, Robin Gibbons. And it's a really sensitive accusation. You know, you don't want to accuse anybody of wife beating, but uh, by the same token, if he's doing it, you know, it's got to get out there. And um, you got to be really careful that you're not being set up. You have to, you know, be sure that this is actually happening or at least these people believe it's happening. 
And then you've got to get to the person being accused and say, hey, this is what everybody's saying about you. And, uh, you know, what do you, what do you have to say to that? Now, I don't know Jared Porter at all. Do not know him. And I would have had no problem reporting that story because I didn't know him. But I'll be honest with you. When the story came out, I put myself in the position like, what if this was Brian Cashman, who I've had a good relationship with? What if I heard this about Brian Cashman? How difficult would be would this be for me to write? It'd be extremely difficult, you know, because it's not the person I know, you know, and I, I never would have expected something like this. But the truth is, you have to weigh, you know, your friendship and working relationship with somebody with, with what the story is. And, you know, unfortunately, the story's got to be written. Uh, you know, I'm sure this was a difficult story for people who knew Jared Porter and, and, had, and had a good relationship with him. Like, you know, you know, you're destroying this guy now. This guy's never going to work in this business again. You know, that's basically it. Um, and you really have to think about, you know, the, the consequences of that before you write it. But by the same token, what he did was terrible and he had to pay for it. So uh, it, it, it's a lot easier to write that story when you don't know the people involved. You know, when it's just people, it's just names that are coming to you and saying, hey, this, you know, when you know the people, and you realize the, the toll it's going to take on them and on their families and on their careers, it makes it very, very difficult. How do we, as reporters, manage that? I want to say, because there, I know that the sports talk radio people here in New York have been, they've been going at, uh, FAN always has a chip on their shoulder about ESPN not letting their people go on FAN for spots, that kind this of thing. This has been going on for 20 years from yeah. when I did my show on ESPN. So, so there's, I know, I don't really want to talk about Carton and Evan, but Carton made a point that this information, ESPN has had it for a number of years, but they didn't write the story for whatever reason. I believe what I heard or read was that the woman who was subjected to the harassment saw that he got the Met job and reached back out to the person she had told. And that's kind of how the, that's why the byline on the story is Mina Kimes and Jeff Passan is that it's believed that she told Mina Kimes about this and that's how the story got out. But mm -hmm. do you, if you're sitting on that story, how do you manage it with a source being like, I don't feel comfortable about reporting this right now, but you have this information in your, in your mind? Yeah, it's, it's difficult, but this happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Somebody will give you a story and say, hey, you know, I, I don't want you to write this, but you got to know what's going on over there. You know, I, I'd always preferred not to hear those mm -hmm. stories because I wouldn't, you know, I hated to sit on anything, yeah. you know, especially something like that. But you, you also have to respect the wishes of the source, especially when the source is somebody who's been a, a subject of the abuse. Yeah. You know, it's like the same way, you know, we protect rape victims by not printing their names. You know, it's just you would have to wait for that person to give you the, the okay. I, I would anyway, yeah. you know, it's, it's, um, it's something that this person, this young lady knew would be damaging to her it was obviously a painful memory to her drove her out of the business. Uh, when something like that says, Hey, I got to tell you something, but, but you please don't write it, you know, or don't, don't name me in this or anything. If you're an ethical journalist, you have to not use it. You know, you really can't, um, I mean, you might, if you know Jared Porter well enough, go and say, hey, you know, I know something, you know, I got, let me tell you something that I know. And uh, you might want to start, you know, circling your wagons or doing something here because somebody's going to come up with this at some point. Um, 
but it's it's a really it's a tough question because you do you know that it happened, but you're asked not to write it. This has happened to me in the past as well. Uh, I always felt you had to respect the person who gave you the story. It, it's part of the balancing act. It, this is journalism is a world of mutual respect where if you break someone once, that's it. They're not going to be able to come back to you, and all you have as a journalist is your reputation. You right. burn someone, you write a bad story, you have bad information, that reflects on you. The news organization will just dump you, and that's it. Right. Get someone and that's else. the other thing. If, if your readers can't trust you, you have no value anymore. Yep. You know, if, if you get something, you know, really wrong like that, why should anybody believe anything that you write? Yeah. And if that's the case, who needs you? You know, why are you even here? So, yeah, it is a balancing act. But, um, by the same token it also hurts your reputation when it gets out that you've that you've had the story for four years and haven't haven't done anything right yeah yeah so i mean it's it, in some ways it's a no-win situation i i think this story was handled correctly i understand the rivalry between fan and espn believe me that worked both ways by the way <laughs> we we couldn't get a lot of uh, fan people on either you know or, or guests that they had we couldn't get um you know and that's just the way the business is it's very petty at times but um i think the story was handled the right way quite honestly all right changing gears a little less serious now just kind of big picture things to talk about the landscape of sports media right now is kind of in this weird in between where you have the legacy publications, where it's a little different for us here in New York because we still have the news, the post. I know the Times still has a, a sports desk, the Journal does. Then you have Newsday. It's a little different here than the rest of the world where, you know, most of the United States, there's one or two newspapers in mm -hmm. most major cities now. It's a little different for us, but big picture wise, there aren't a ton. It's not like it was back in the day, obviously. There aren't, news, there aren't really newspaper men anymore. There's not the big columnist who can, there's not the Dick Young that can trade the best player on, on the Mets. Run right. a guy out of town, run a Hall of Famer out of town. For no right. reason. Yeah. yeah there, for no that, reason, basically. That kind of thing doesn't exist anymore. So no. let's start here. What do you think are the better jobs in sports media now? What what would you want to do if you were actively still, let's say you were like 30 and really wanted to cut, sink your teeth in? What kind of publication or what kind of work would you want to do? Well, you know, interestingly enough, when I, when I was starting in the business, when I was 30, you know, or, or in my 20s, the thing to be was the general columnist. That's what you wanted to be because you were up on the mountain, you know, you came down with the tablets. I'm not going to tell you, you know, how it is on everything. You know, it doesn't matter. NBA, NHL, NFL, Kentucky Derby. I am the expert on everything. And here it goes. Obviously, the internet has changed all that. Everything is specialized now. Nobody is considered an expert on anything. Nobody wants to read a guy who claims to be an expert on everything. Everybody wants to read the insider, you know the guy who's wired in with, with the NFL, the guy who's wired in on boxing, the guy who's wired in on hockey. Don't want to hear from even like, you know, the, the greats like Dick Young or, or Dave Anderson, who could definitely spin a great column out of any event they went to. You know, that's, that's not the, the way things are done anymore. We know this from cable television. Everything is a, is a niche now. All right, everything is a specialization. Um, so, what I would have wanted to do 30 years ago is not what I would want to do today. Today, I would want to be an expert in one particular sport. You know, um, for me, it, it would either be boxing or baseball. That's what I would want to do. 
uh, and write exclusively about that from a true insider's perspective. Now, what do I mean by a true insider's uh, perspective? I mean, somebody who's not carrying the water of one side or the other. And I think we see a lot of that today. Uh, somebody who actually had people on both sides of the aisle talking to them, you know, both the players and the owners or uh, both the fighters and the promoters, um, you know, um, somebody who could equally navigate, say, you know, Rob Manfred's office and uh, the Yankee clubhouse and tell you what's really going on, not just spinning a yarn on behalf of the league or on behalf of the Players Association or on the behalf of an agent, which we also see a lot of. Yeah. Uh, to me, you know, that would be the ideal job. And um, I know that um, people are seduced by the money and the glamour of being on television. But to me, you know, I was always, I always considered myself a writer first. And that, to me, that's where I would want to do it. And um, as much as I loved writing for newspapers, obviously now the place to do it is on the internet. Yeah. But yeah, I think specialization is the way to go now. Okay, so you had mentioned one thing in there that I'm going to pull out because it's a little further down in the rundown, but it's worth talking about is the role of the people who own the rights to the live events also mm. being the news organization, whether you're talking yeah. about Fox with college football, ESPN with college football, baseball, basketball, what have you. There is a legitimate criticism. I know of me and a few of my friends my age who are news people feel that it's a little bit I don't want to say icky, but there's, it's a little weird that, you know, the NFL trooped through a 256 game season in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, Adam Schefter's there, like, what an accomplishment by Roger Goodell to get 256 games in during a pandemic. How, how do we deal with that as consumers of the news and people in the business where well, it's a terrible conflict of interest, first of all, um, I think, you know, a discerning viewer, you know, if, if you're really, if you're a, a sharp reader, you know that, you know, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm not singling out Adam Schefter, but you know Adam Schefter is, is pretty much working for the league, all right? You know Ken Rosenthal is, you know, or Tom Verducci are working for Major League Baseball. Um, you know, they're not going to criticize the powers that be. Right. And they are going to say, yeah, this is a wonderful thing, you know, that, that they did here. Uh, it's access journalism. It's really bad. It's, uh, you know, I worked for ESPN for a long time. And um, obviously, Major League Baseball is one of their partners. And I, as the Yankee beat writer, I was covering Alex Rodriguez's appeal of his suspension back in 2014. And uh, I had some pretty good information that what Rob Manford, who at the time was uh, pretty much Bud Selig's hatchet man, that what he was doing in order to convict Alex Rodriguez was probably illegal, that they had bought some stolen property out of the trunk of somebody's car, you know, and I had it on good authority and ESPN asked me not to write it. And that is purely because they did not want to anger their partner, their business partner, Major League Baseball. Uh, I'm sure this happens all the time. We also know that ESPN pulled out on an NFL expose about the head injuries a few years yeah. ago with PBS, you know, and there's only one reason why they did that is they didn't want to piss off Roger Goodell, you know. So obviously, you can't consider yourself a news organization if you are going to be in business with the with the businesses that you're covering. Um, and I think ESPN does it. I think Fox does it. I think ABC, NBC, and CBS do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you're never gonna, you know, CBS. Who does the Masters? CBS. 
you're never yeah. going to hear about, you know, I'm sure they, they never went too heavy on the Augusta National story, you know, when, when no women were allowed into Augusta. Uh, you know, that's just not what they do. And they, they their their defense is, well, our viewers don't want to see that. They just want to see golf. Well, it's baloney. You have a, a responsibility as a news organization to tell the truth about the people that you cover. You know, it, otherwise drop the pretense and just say, you know, we're partners. You know, we're partners. We're going to be a PR arm for them and, you know, just sit back and enjoy it. But I'm sorry that it never worked for me. It It's a legitimate criticism and i see i notice it a lot with whether it's boxing or mma it's really bad in those sports respectively as far as the base you get access to write the favorable story i know i know the ufc is particularly bad with this because you know dana white's running a circus he brings well, in it's his kind of like the wwe yes he, he, <laughs> he has control over his announcers he has control over the people that cover him and of course if you don't write what he wants you're out you're out of a paycheck yeah but it's not only there. I mean, look, it's not only there. Some some guys who cover the Giants, for instance, are friends. <laughs> okay, they're friends of mine. However, they all want to be on whatever the TV show is that Pat Hanlon runs, Giants Insider or whatever. They get paid to go on that, and you don't want to piss off Pat Hanlon. I have pissed him off, you know. And believe me, I've never been on that show, and I never will be. But the guys who are on that regularly, they don't have to be told you know, watch what you say, they just know, you know, I want to keep doing this. So, okay. You know, whatever you say, yeah, the giants are great. Uh, you know, <laughs> Daniel Jones is going to be, you know, another YA tittle, you know, it's just the way it is. Unfortunately, you know, these guys, they, they feather their own nests and they know where their, where their bread is buttered. So they, and they're not going to do anything to screw that up. It's one of those things where being that I sat through a journalism school for four years, I look at the news a little differently than the rest of my friends who just like, you know, care about football. And it's what drives me up the wall in the coverage of some of my teams, especially the Giants and the Rangers, where there's never anything bad happening, no matter never. what, no matter what there's, never. you know, you have guys getting arrested, you have people getting charged with armed robbery, you have players getting arrested for domestic violence. And, you know, Wellington Mara, he was really great 70 years ago. He said we should sh share the TV right money with everyone else. And the Giants are still this world-class organization. And it's frustrating as both a news person, because I know I'd be, I, if I had the opportunity to ask a question, I'd be like, do you guys want to win football games at any point here? Or are we just, you know, we want to remember Lawrence Taylor and Bill Parcells till yeah. I'm 80 years old. You're making me laugh because that's exactly the column that got me into trouble with Hanlon. Uh, you know, because the Giants have this reputation of being, you know, this top-notch organization. Meanwhile, you know, they've had a, a punter beat his wife. They had a guy who shot himself in a nightclub. They had Lawrence Taylor who basically could just do whatever he wants. They, you know, they drafted Christian Peter who was accused of rape. I mean, they had like one bad actor after another. However, somehow they've always gotten a pass from the media that covers them. And I wrote a column like that for the Daily News about 18 months ago and Pat Hanlon was like, you know, don't even come to our games anymore <laughs> to your face. So, you know, I, I understand he has like kind of like a, a reign of terror over the people that, that cover them. And um, unfortunately it's pervasive in the NFL. The NFL, nobody really wants to buck the commissioner. Nobody wants to say anything bad about the game because there's a lot of perks to just going along with what they want you to write. Yeah. It it's it's very frustrating is where I'll leave that point at because mm -hmm. I feel like you know I'm not an idiot you don't have to spoon feed it to me I 
didn't go into the season expecting the Giants to be good, but, you know, a little bit of criticism that, hey, man, this general manager has the worst record of any general manager in the league since he was hired. Maybe we should start, you know, maybe the blame isn't just on the guys on the field. Maybe it's the guy who's picking the guys who are on the field. I'll put a pin in that there. I, I, this doesn't need to turn into therapy. Well, all I know is that, you know, what, the Giants finished 5-11 and 11 or 6-10 and 10 this year. 6-10, and 10, yeah. 6-10. and 10. Somehow that became like a successful season. And it's in the national media too. You know, Joe Judge should win coach of the year. They won six games. Oh, God, man. It is a joke. It's, it really is painful. So, but the NFL does have a hold on its audience. And yeah. um, unfortunately, you know, they're giving people what they want. I hate to say it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I'm not going to lie. I sit through 17 weeks of red zone, watch Sunday night football, Monday night football, Thursday right. night football. It's, it's an addictive quality. You only get 17 weeks of it a year. You get the four weeks of the playoffs, and then that's it. The other 30 weeks of the year, you're subjected mm-hmm. to just basketball, baseball, and hockey. you got to figure out something else to do with your time. Well, there are other things besides sports, you know. Yeah, that, that's debatable. That's debatable. Well, the other thing I would say is that, you know, the NFL writers really dropped the ball on Kaepernick. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is just like it's completely gone away that you've got a guy who's been blacklisted basically for doing nothing, for doing for calling attention to a problem that's, you know, really – pervasive in the united states and this guy cannot get a job in the nfl uh and i'm sorry there have been no nfl writers who have stepped out and said hey this is something that's got to you know and I, and I go back i'm old enough to remember where muhammad ali was blackballed uh for not uh for refusing to go uh, to vietnam and there were very few people who stepped out there but they were they were howard cosell stepped out um you know bud Schilberg stepped out uh, jimmy breslin pete hamill the greats stepped out and said, hey, this is not right. Dick Schapp stepped out. Uh, Dick Young, of course, went the opposite way and said, you know, hey, this guy ought to be in Vietnam fighting for us, you know. But um, unfortunately, there are no, there is nobody comparable to any of those people in print or broadcast today. So because this is part of that conversation, do you still think the New York media is like, you know, as difficult as it's perceived, like, you know, I know it was a story once that what was his face, Cliff Lee, the left-handed pitcher forever. The Yankees tried to trade for him multiple times. And he's like, no, I don't want to go to New York. I know they tried to go after Grinky at one point. He said, no, where that's kind of a story, but is that really, do you feel like as a newsman, that's still a thing? No, I never thought it was quite honestly, never thought it was. Um, you know, I keep going back to Dick Young. He like he was the only example of the New York media that I ever really ran into. You know, he would actually yell at athletes and, and ask them the rudest questions. You know, um, I I mean, one time he, uh, this was at a boxing match. Tim Witherspoon had gotten knocked out in the first round. And he was he was out of shape, and uh, Dick Young stands up in the press conference and goes. Tim, did you did you even trade for this fight? You got tits. <laughs> and Tim Witherspoon, to his credit, said, "Oh, Dick, you got tits too." And uh, you know, it kind of degenerated from there. But I never saw, you know, the kind of the the reputation of the questioning and how rough they were on athletes. I guess by comparison, you know, in other cities where you have maybe two guys covering a team. You know, now, you know, there are 11 people who cover the Yankees on a daily basis, 11 who travel with them, you know, multiply that by several when they're playing at home, 
you know, obviously in a, in a pre-pandemic world when, you know, if there's a game at Yankee Stadium, every one of those news outlets that are covering the Yankees are sending two or three people. So yes, there will be 30 people at, at John Carlos Stanton's locker before a game and after a game. Uh, does that mean the, the questioning is tough? Hell no. This means there's a lot of us, you know? Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of that is overblown. Um, the Cliff Lee thing, supposedly his wife was abused by people in the stands, which I think is quite possible. Yeah. Much more possible than, you know, a player being abused in the locker room. Believe me, I, for the most part, I think the New York media has become very, very hands-off, non-confrontational. Um, every bit is as susceptible to access journalism as anybody else. Like, you know, not going to piss anybody off because I want you to talk to me tomorrow. Uh, I think that our reputation exceeds us. You know, Zach Granke thinks that, you know, we were going to be tough on him. He's really got it wrong. If anything, I think a lot of people would, you know, would be going out of their way to write sensitive stories about Zach Granke and his, his social anxiety problems. You know, I don't think people would be ridiculing him for it. I just do not see that at all in the New York media. In fact, when I was on the Yankee beat, you know, this had a reputation of being so cutthroat. I mean, these people were some of my best friends for 10 years, you know, guys from other papers and, and women from other papers. You know, we all hung out together. You know, we wanted to beat each other. I wanted to have a story you didn't have. But in the meantime, we'd all drink together at night, you know, and joke together in the clubhouse. It was just not the same. If it was like that back in the 70s, you know, that's before my time. And I, I, it hasn't been that way for three decades. Yeah, I because I was talking about this the other day in relation to um the Knicks. I because the Knicks and the Jets are basically the only teams that still get it. Where no matter what you want to make a funny headline to post the news, they're just going to throw something with the Jets or the Knicks on the back cover. But well, they're easy punching bags. That's exactly sure. no other team, no other team gets the punching bag treatment. The Mets did, but not like for the reasons they. No, you just wait. Just wait till you see everybody roll over for Steve Cohen. <laughs> hey man they were already going after him like a week ago being like oh we're only getting Lindor <laughs> I really saw a column in a New York publication being like this is the savior we he all he did was get Francisco Lindor oh my god <laughs> the Wilpons would have had to put Lindor on layaway if they man, wanted to trade for Lindor that's true we have to understand you know Met fans and I grew up a Met fan it's, it's kind of a long-suffering thing and you, yeah. you kind of expect the worst at all times um, I, I just sensed that there was a lot of optimism that, that Jeff Wilpon was out of the picture. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, that may devolve into, uh, into disappointment, but, you know, still, I think at this, you know, I thought, and I thought they handled, you know, go back to the Porter situation. They handled it well, you know, no fooling around as soon as they found out out of here, you know, we're in the past that, and I won't say it probably wouldn't, it would not have happened. Yeah. The Mets fired a woman who was pregnant out of wedlock. That's all that needs to be said about the Mets and the Wilpons. That's all you need to say about. Well, this they even predates the Wilpons. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm old enough to remember when they they tried to Cleon Jones out to apologize to his wife because he got caught in a, in a van with a with a woman. Yeah. You know, back in the '70s, uh, you know, it was horrible. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating. It was dehumanizing, and it was the Mets. They did it. You know, that was Will. That was when Jeff Wilpon was just a, a little boy. Yeah. Okay. Transitioning topics here, a little bit more back to the abstract philosophy thing. You had said before about specialization. I know that sitting in a couple of different workshops, seminars type things, it was really beaten over the head to me that I need to be able to understand 
how things happen and why things happen, not just mm-hmm. that they happened. Right. How do you incorporate that into doing your column or your news story where, all right, the game happened. I need to be able to do X, Y, explain why it happened. I need to go back and rewatch this. I need to go look at heat maps. I need to go look at pitch splits. How do you use that in a way that doesn't become too dense or too technical? Yeah, well, I, I never used a lot of that. I mean, I, I always try to, to keep it on a human level. And the thing is, you know, I'm going to go back to kind of something I said before. When I was a columnist, you know, I, I wrote a lot of knee-jerk columns because I didn't have the background. I wasn't around the community. I found that my stuff was better and more analytical when I was a beat writer because I because not only you know, did I know the players, but I had been with them since February 14th, you know, and I saw what this guy went through to get here, you know, and I saw why this guy didn't make it or why this, you know, why that guy's playing instead of that guy, you know, why uh, Aaron Boone or Girardi, you know, would do something. You have to draw on your, on your background of knowledge. And there are things that you'll see in February that you might not write about till August, you know, because they won't really be applicable. You know, suddenly you say, oh, gee, I remember when, you know, back in, in spring training, this happened. And now I see why they did that. And now, and here's the place where it applies. And I, you know, I wish I could give you a concrete example of what I'm talking about. But the thing is, a general columnist never has that background, not around them enough, you know. And yes, I know there are people who, whose, whose columns and whose analytical pieces are solely um, centered around numbers and, uh, you know, and safer metrics, that's fine. I mean, there's a place for it. I just never felt that those were interesting columns to me to write or to read, quite honestly. I mean, I, I wanted to hear more about, you know, what did, you know, Tanaka go through, you know, living here for the first three months without his wife? What was it like, you know, not to know anybody or not to speak any English, you know, and, and who was talking to this guy and where was he going, you know, and how was he focusing just on baseball? To me, that was more interesting than, you know, the spin rotation on, on his car. I didn't care about that. You know, that to me, that's that's baloney. That's, you know, that's the kind of stuff that that really, you know, I, I'm not, I was going to say the N-word, really nerdy people are into. To me, that's not, you know, you, you seem to forget that the games are played by human beings, you know, by flesh and blood human beings. And, and you cannot reduce everything to a number. It just doesn't work. You know? I take it you didn't like Moneyball then. No, I did. I didn't. I understood it. No, no, I did like it. And I, and I, and I like Billy. I like Billy Bean, you know, and, and I understood where he was coming from, but I just didn't think it was the gospel. I don't, I don't think it's the be all and end all. Yeah, I think it's part of it. I think it's part of it, but I don't think a number will ever tell you how a particular player is going to react in a situation. The only way you're going to know is by seeing it, you know, I mean, Jared Cheater, right? Perfect example. This is a guy who, you know, by the numbers, doesn't pop out. And yeah, I mean, yes, you know, 3,500 hits is incredible, but it, he's a compiler, you know, more than anything. However, you'd seen him in the situation so many times that I didn't, I didn't want to look at the numbers. I didn't care what the numbers said. I know if that, if I had to put a guy in this situation, I'm not going to do much better than this guy, you know, because I know he's not going to choke on the moment here. He's going to be ready for it. And you can't say that by, you know, just because a guy has great numbers doesn't mean that in a particular situation, he's going to have the presence of mind to do it. The human element is there. The human element is there, and it's hard to interpret. There are things that people are trying to figure out. I know 
there's one guy I read his stuff in the athletic. He's working on a clutch quantifying thing because based on game situation where I understand how it's calculated, but he's still trying to work it out because he's looking at it as a math equation, not as this is what's happening. I want to try and figure it out. I will say I do both. I, when I write things about the giants or just NFL in general, I have a game pass subscription. I will go back and sit there and watch the entire all 22. And then I will go look at a heat map. I'll go look at the Amazon next gen stats site. I'm trying to find a way to weave both together because I think being able to explain how things happen is an important part of it. And that the numbers Absolutely. do have a role, that the numbers have a role in that, but being able to translate the numbers to something visual, it helps a lot is where I'll leave that. Yeah. But um, again, you know, you can take, um, you can take, you know, Daniel Jones's numbers on, you know, certain situations but it will not apply to a sing- it, it will apply over a long haul, but it will not apply to a single, single instance, you know, yeah. one, one instance, you know, one third and eight where he's got to make this and his, you know, a minute and 22 seconds left in the game, you know, take all those, those numbers and throw them out the window. Yeah. You know, is this the quarterback you want throwing the ball right now? Yeah. yeah. Num- numbers are good in big samples. A small sample size gives you nothing. One, two, three games doesn't help you. An entire season for Italian evaluation purposes, sure, but that's not going to tell you what's going to happen every single night. They're, it's just not possible. If it were, there'd be a lot of very rich people. <laughs> that's for sure. Because that's an underlying thing that I've noticed a lot more recently is that as, you know, the government's kind of gotten a little more cool about uh, gambling and drugs, that gambling is part of the news now. And it's leading to the really awkward sponsored segments on whatever show you're watching before the game starts, where it's people who aren't gambling experts looking at gambling odds and trying to give the appearance of expertise. And it's an ethical gray area. I don't think Michael Strahan should be telling people what they should be betting their money on. Yeah, he knows football, but there's a lot more to it than just, well, I think this team is better than this team. Yeah. Um... The legalized gambling thing, I don't have a, a moral problem with it. Uh, you know, listen, you know, if the government can make money off it, why not? Uh, same thing with, you know, with marijuana. I mean, what the hell? You know, people are going are gonna to do it anyway. But I agree with you. I, I do not think that analysts should, like, become touts. Yeah. Right? I, I think it really <laughs> looks bad, first of all. Second of all, I, I want to know if Michael Strahan is betting any of his own money on, on these picks of his. Probably not. Yeah. He's a dumb guy. How how different is it now? Because like I know who Jimmy the Greek is. I've watched the documentaries. Like, how different is gambling in culture now from your perspective? As like when you were growing up, it'd be something that like you know, Brett Musburger would make an offhanded reference to in the fourth quarter of a football game. But how different is it? Well, it's obviously more out in the open now, but I mean, there was always gambling. You know, oh, yeah. that's, that hasn't changed. You know, f- for the longest time, the NFL and its its uh, endless hypocrisy. You know, didn't even they would fight newspapers about putting the, the point spreads in the paper. You know, it goes God forbid nobody gambles on our games. Are you kidding? This is the only thing that people watch your games for, guys. I hate to tell you, you know, is gambling. Without that, it's just another you know, it's another three hour diversion. Um, so. I think it's just more, I think that what's happened is the leagues have now realized, hey, this is another way we can make some money. You know, how stupid are we? Why not, you know, if everybody is doing it anyway, why shouldn't we cash in on this? I mean, that's clearly what's going on here. 
but you know that hasn't changed i mean you know we'd play in office pools on on uh every sunday you know back in the 70s that was not a big deal it was everybody did it um so i don't think it's any different i just think that when something becomes more um um more accessible to the public obviously more people get involved in it which makes it a little bit more dangerous too yeah do you yeah. think those are straightforward? Where would you categorize the people who do that kind of thing? Are those news people? Are those analysts? Are those columnists? Are those math people? What kind of what kind of box would you group? It's entertainment. I think that's entertainment. I don't. I don't think it's it's news. It's not news, because it's arbitrary. Somebody's coming up with a number, right? Uh-huh. Based on something. It's it's certainly not. It, it's just yeah. It's it's entertainment. It's not even analysis, really. You know, it's it's just another way to hook people into watching a game. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously the game's not enough, evidently for some people, and quite honestly, it's not enough for me. I don't I don't watch a lot of football. I just don't find the game that interesting, quite honestly. Um, if I were a gambler, maybe I would, because if I had money on it, I'd be like, hey, yeah, I'm really interested to see what you know what Tom Brady's going to do on this player. Um, but to me, like the game doesn't get me that much and they realize that after a while you need more than just a game to keep people at the level of interest that they've had for all these years now so you know obviously gambling is a new thing i don't know what they'll do once that becomes old hat what will they go to next you know (laughs) um yeah but I, i think it's pure entertainment quite honestly how do you think the ease of access of information whether it's gambling whether it's statistics that kind of thing how do you think that changes the fan perspective of what you got, what news people do. Because we feel, because the casual person can just open a baseball reference tab and go game right. by game. And Find look. out everything. Absolutely yeah. right. Well, it's, it's made, made our jobs a little more difficult because, you know, it used to be that we were like the almighty arbiters of everything and we knew everything and you guys didn't have access to this. Now, of course, you do have access to it and that's fine, but it pushes us into different levels of creativity now. Now we got to come up with other ways to tell you the story. I mean, I can't tell you something that you already know. I have to, and this is goes into, you know, the sabermetrics analysis of things. You know, let's look deeper into the numbers. You know, anybody now can look up a guy's batting average or his OPS or whatever, you know, and find out what he does, you know, with two strikes and, uh, and you know, after the seventh inning. Um, so it does make it a little bit more difficult for us. We got to be a little bit we got to think outside the box. We got to dig a little bit deeper, but I think it's, I think the more information that's available to everybody, the better, you know, um, I, when I grew up, you know, I thought sports writers knew everything because I couldn't, I had, I only had access to what they told me. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, we didn't have, there was no internet. There was very little pre or post game stuff. You know, to me, post game was Kiner's corner. <laughs> 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 Ralph would be like half in the bag interviewing some player. <laughs> uh, you know, there was just no, and and they were the arbors. They told me, you know, Dick Young told me what was going on. You know, uh, you know, Vic Ziegel told me what happened yesterday. Um, you know, I would go to a game and then read the story the next day, and it, it wouldn't even. A lot of times, it wouldn't even seem like the game that I saw. And I would think, well, I didn't see it the right way. Obviously, this guy saw it the right way because he knows everything, you know. And obviously, that's been that's been stripped away now. You know, we don't have that that all-seeing power anymore. You know, we're not omnipotent. We we are 
we're just observers like the rest of you with maybe with a little bit more inside information because we do get to spend some private time with the players although that's decreasing as well yeah um we do you know if we if we're good at what we do we do um forge relationships with coaches and managers and gms and inside you know true insiders who can tell us hey you know the reason why this guy's not throwing that pitch anymore is because his elbow hurts but don't write it you know like we we will occasionally get things like that but for the most part you're you're going to know just about as much as i do and you're going to see the game just as well as i see it starting to wrap up here i got the gotta have the rapid fire thing just to kind of ask you some little bit just fun topics things i was thinking Uh-oh. about the other day okay so the first one it happened today just what did Hank Aaron mean to you as a baseball person? Because he passed away today, and obviously, Titanic figure in baseball. You know what? He meant he meant more to me later when I was a baseball writer than he did when I was a kid because I was a Met fan. He was a brave. He was a guy that would come in and torment us, you know. But later on, you know, when I when I started to cover baseball and I started to see and I and my beginnings of covering baseball right at the beginning of the steroid era. And I would see these monsters in the clubhouse, you know, it would be like the 20 Arnold Schwarzeneggers in the clubhouse. And then you'd see Hank Aaron and you go, Jesus, this guy is better than all of those guys, you know, amazing. I I mean, I had so much more respect for him when I realized, you know, like I grew up to be about the same size as him. He's probably an inch taller than me. We were both like 180 pounds. And this guy hit more home runs than anybody without any help. I mean, if you can't respect a guy like that, and if that doesn't put the lie to the Barry Bonds's, Mark McGuire's, Sammy Sosa's of the world, I don't know what does. And if nothing else, the fact that Barry Bonds had to pump himself up full of steroids to break Hank Aaron's record, only it doesn't diminish Hank. If anything, it elevates him. It shows you how great he actually was, that this is what this guy had to do to catch it question two in this round if you do you have a hall of fame ballot are you still baseball right i gave up my hall of fame ballot four years ago because of a gentleman named kurt Schilling. <laughs> if you had a ballot who would you have put on this year any of the steroid guys would I've, you... i'll never put the steroid guys on. i just can't i just can't and the reason being this is one of the biggest reasons why i gave my ballot reason being the hall of fame is a hall of numbers it really is and if you can't trust the numbers, I can't vote for you, you know? And, and I know it's almost impossible to know who is, who isn't, who was, who wasn't. So at that point, you know what? I don't want to be involved. Do you think I like, you know, filling out a ballot without the all-time home run leader on it or the all-time strikeout leader on it? You know, do you think I feel good about that? No, especially knowing that Bud Selig, who enabled the whole era who turned a blind eye claimed he didn't know anything about it is in the hall of fame do you think i feel good about that well if i can't fill out a ballot that makes me feel good about my picks i don't want to fill out a ballot so i I will respectfully decline to answer that question that's a very ethical answer that i'm that was a really good answer wow okay (laughs) all right next question down in this list I give you a time machine. You can go cover any game, any fight, any race, anything you want. One game, you've got to write the game story. What do you want to go and back to see? Joe, can only be one? Yeah, one single event. Oh, my God. Oh, geez. 
I always wanted to see the Dempsey Willard fight live. But I also wanted to see Secretariat's Belmont. I wanted to see Babe Ruth call a shot or, you know, just to be timely, I would have loved to be there today. Hank Aaron hit 715. I think I would have done the miracle on ice if they gave me a time machine. Go hmm. cover the go cover the USSR. You're a USA hockey game. guy, man. I, that's that's my answer to all of those types of questions. You could go see one game. You could go do. I want to go to that. That's. I went back and watched that game because the whole thing's on YouTube. One of the good things of this pandemic is there's a lot of old sports on YouTube it's pl- and plenty of time to watch them. Yeah, not a lot to do, and just the style of hockey is so primitive and so slow, and so they're playing with wooden sticks. I mean, now you could break one of those sticks over your knee. You could play with a car. Playing on real ice, though, weren't they? Yeah, they're playing on real ice. Yeah, okay. they're playing on real ice. <laughs> that's a that's another good point. They're playing on actual ice, not the synthetic ice they use now. Right. Okay. Next in this, how has your perspective on sports changed from the fan over to the newsman? When did it kind of hit you that all right? Not obviously this is your job, but when did your perspective change? What was the oh. like light bulb moment? Oh, geez. Oh, my God. That's really, that's a tough question. I will tell you this. I enjoyed sports more as a fan, but I appreciated them much more as a journalist. Um, when did it change? I don't know. I mean, in some, you know, in terms of covering boxing, it never changed. It never changed. I always enjoyed, you know, I, I always had like a fan's enthusiasm while covering it but I still had a critical eye baseball I think it did change when I realized that the only people really benefiting from the success of these teams are the owners you know like I I used to get like really excited if the Mets won but then I'd wake up the next morning and be the same you know my life would still be the same (laughs) you know so I I think that I, I I started to see that you know the business side of it, that it wasn't, you know, and I, and I've said this before the players, no matter how much they make, they're just a hired help. They really are the owners, you know, to them, the players just come and go, you know, we'll get rid of you. We'll get a new guy. You know what? I I, I just thought of a moment when the Yankees kind of stuck it to Bernie Williams. I think it might've been 1990. No, I'm, I'm no, it was later than that in the early 2000s, when they basically said to him, you know, you can come back on a minor league deal for like half a million bucks. And I was like, Bernie Williams, dude, they don't even want him back. And I really, and, you know, and I had been in the business for a while then, but it just seemed to me like, you know, I took to see them discarding this guy, you know, who meant so much to this team for so long. It's like, okay, now I see what this is all about. This is a business. These guys are just, you know, these guys are the hired help. When he's done, a new guy will come in. When the new guy is done, a new guy will come in. And there's no real loyalty here. Yeah, it, it's complicated. There are emotions. These are people. That's one of the things that's kind of changed, especially in the last few years, is that there's really kind of an overhanded attempt to, like, remind the public, like, yeah, these are people. They have emotions. you got to be respectful of that. You can't just constantly rag on them if they want to go play for another team. It's not don't side with the owners is basically where most absolutely not but i also understand you know when i got to understand cashman i got along well with cashman but his thing was you know the day you can't win a game for me anymore you're done i'm sorry you know and and that went for Derek jeter that went for williams that went for mariano it's like the day that once i realized that there's somebody who can do this better than you you're out of here and i can't be any other way to do my job 
you know, and I understood that and I respected it, but as a fan, it seems kind of cold. Now, because you are a boxing guy, I had to throw this question in here. How do you feel about the whole either whether you want to talk about the celebrity boxing, whether it's like the Paul brother fighting an NBA player, or you want to talk about Mike Tyson and Roy Jones boxing in their mid fifties. That was a disgrace. You do not understand how excited all of my friends were to watch 50 something year old Mike Tyson. How, they, how excited were they at the end of this? They all were like, that was fun. They were like, it was my, the novelty of Mike Tyson to my generation is because we're all, a few years removed from when he was, you know, Mike Tyson. We know Mike Tyson is the guy with the lisp who was in the hangover, who had the cartoon, who had the cartoon show, who had the cartoon show with the pigeons. But we got to see, you know, my one friend is like, he looks, he looks like Mike Tyson. No, he doesn't. He's 55 years old, whatever he is. Certainly didn't fight like him either. How do you just, as both as a boxing reporter and a boxing fan, the whole, the exploitation of boxing, basically, is what I'll call it. Well, you know what? I, I can't say that Tyson or Jones were exploited there. They both made a decent amount of money. Obviously, a lot of people paid to see this. It was a sparring session. Nobody got hurt. I paid my 50 bucks for it just out of curiosity, but I was cursing the whole night. It's like, this is awful. Um, as far as the celebrity boxing goes, I don't even know who those people are. <laughs> I'm you don't sorry. remember Nate Robinson when he was on the Knicks? Yeah, I do, but I mean, he, he boxes. I mean, no, then that's why he got knocked out in the second yeah, round. Yeah, you know, yeah. I lived through two tall Jones, who was six <laughs> foot nine. He was a boxer too, right? He yeah, got yeah. Beat by like a guy who was five eleven, who was actually a boxer. <laughs> where does that? Why do promoters put on these novelty things where you know someone could like? That's obviously the money aspect, but like that's you what? know. The ethical gray area. How much further do you have to look? You're putting someone who's not a trained boxer in a ring with someone who's a trained boxer. You know, you could kill someone. They, do they care? <laughs> That's a fair point. I've That's never a seen point. a promoter get killed in a boxing match. <laughs> you know, really the Roman Coliseum, they killed people, you know, every single day. Do you think the Emperor Nero, Nero cared? He didn't care. That's a good soundbite. <laughs> I've never seen a boxing promoter die in a ring. I, would, I wouldn't mind, but I haven't seen it. Uh, now, a little more serious for this question. If you could go back and change how you covered a specific story, what would you go back and fix? One story that you feel you either got wrong, you didn't get yeah. the whole story. Oh, God. Well, first of all, there's, there's never been a story I've written where the next day I didn't look at it and say, I could have done better, <laughs> honestly. But there was one story in particular that I really screwed up when um, Tyson came out of prison. I was convinced by certain people that he was going to leave Don King and go to a different promoter and that he was going to change his life. And I wrote it and it was on the back page of Newsday. And then the next day, um, Tyson had a press conference and announced that Don King was still his promoter. And I looked like a complete idiot. And I realized afterward that the reason why I screwed this up is because I wanted it to happen. You know, and I, and I was not looking at the whole picture. I was listening to people who were telling me what I wanted to hear. And uh, it was a mistake and I should not have done it. Um, Tyson, at the time he went into prison, was pretty much acting like a gangster and he wore a fedora. It actually gave me a good lead. And when he came out, he had, he had converted to Islam mm-hmm. and he wore a prayer cap. So he gave me a good lead. It was like, you know, Mike Tyson said he was going to change his life. All he did was change his hat. He went from fedora to prayer cap, but I, it was an embarrassing 
very embarrassing uh, uh, period for me and I should not have done it. And I wish that I had been a little bit more clear right on that story. What's the story you're most proud of? Oh, geez, probably the Tyson Robin Givens story because we did work very hard on it and we resisted writing it. I mean, it kind of relates sort of to the Jared Porter situation because we did, we didn't sit on it for a long time. We maybe had it for like three weeks, but we were, um, we wanted to be very sure that everything was, that the T's were crossed, you know, the I's were dotted, that Tyson had his say, that um, everybody was on the record, that the lawyers had read it, that the writing of it was the way we wanted it to be. We worked very, very hard on the story. And uh, it wasn't just me. I mean, it was a whole, you know, the, the Newsday editing team, the Newsday legal team. So I, I think that one, I think that that worked out exactly the way it should have. And, and if had we rushed it in, it might've been a disaster and we didn't. What's a professional opportunity you missed out on that you would have liked to, if you got the benefit of hindsight, like to explore? Well, in uh, 1988, I got hired to do, um, to be the sideline reporter for NBC at the Olympics on their boxing telecast. And, um, and with all due modesty, it did a pretty good job. And when it was over, the, uh, the um, producer at NBC, a guy named Mike Weissman, who's now a big shot at Fox, said to me, you're not a newspaper man anymore. This is your career now. And quite honestly, I never embraced it. I never embraced it. I felt that TV was, I, in my arrogance, I felt TV was beneath me. I thought that I was, a, I'm a writer, I'm a newspaper reporter, I don't want to do this. And I let that opportunity slip away and I wish that I had, I had handled that differently. Who stuff, I know you like to delineate your professional stuff from your regular time. You, I know sitting in your class more than once you said, when you go home, I'm not putting on Sports Center. I'm not putting on a game. I just mm -hmm. want to read. If you, if you want to, you know, get a little bit of a barometer of what's going on. Who do you like to read? What publications do you check? Well, it's, you know, I'm still a New York guy. I always have been. I love to read um, Tyler Kepner on baseball. Absolutely my favorite. I like to read um, Mike Vaccaro as, you know, he's one of the last of a dying breed general columnist, you know, and one that I would actually, um, you know, trust because I think that he's got a good perspective on things. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. I mean, I don't read a lot of NFL because I don't find football interesting to read at all. Um, um, on horse racing, I used to love to read Andrew Beyer, but I think he's retired now. Uh, NHL, I don't really read a lot, unfortunately. Um, uh, I used to love to read Sam Fischler, great friend of mine, who, by the way, wrote some tremendous books on the subway. <laughs> about the uh, the building of the new york subway yeah no historian amazing yeah. stuff amazing yeah. stuff uh who else i don't know on, on, on baseball as i say i think kepner is, is by far the best i think he's um he really gets inside things and the thing is that he loves baseball he really does and he's been a baseball nerd his whole life he'll you know self-admitted um you know I, I just think he always brings a great perspective to everything that he writes but honestly, I don't read a lot of sports. Do you think that helps? That makes a difference that you can, when it comes out, when you're reading someone's work, that they love what they're doing? Do you think that? Without a doubt. Because I feel sometimes like you can tell someone 
is more comfortable writing about another sport and then they get thrown on something else and mm. it comes across that they're just regurgitating what they're being told they're just yeah. kind of going through yeah. the motions yeah you know when i um when i was at yahoo um last year or the year before they uh, asked me to cover uh us open tennis which i really had never done before and um i was a little reluctant quite honestly but what I did was I spent, this is the beauty of the internet. I couldn't have done this years ago. I just read as much as I could about as many people as I could so that when I got to the tennis center, I would at least have a little bit of familiarity and then I could go from there. And it turned out to be a huge help. And um, it helps, you know, when you aren't, when you're uncomfortable with something, it helps to be open-minded on it. And I decided I'm, I'm going to be open-minded. I'm going to go see if I like this, I'm going to see, you know, what, what it is about this that makes it unique. And I wound up covering some really great matches, really great women's matches. Uh, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I think the important thing is not to be resistant to it. A lot of times we get stuck on, you know, writing things that we don't want to write about. And then, yeah, we will go through the motions. But if you go there and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to learn what I can about this and, and try to do the best I can. You can actually, you can make people think that you know what you're writing about. I mean, I wrote one thing about Coco Goff as a 15-year-old tennis player. And then I read, I almost never read the comments under my stories because they're usually, you know, this guy's an asshole, get rid of him. But uh, <laughs> I decided I was going to read them just to find out. And I could not believe how positive people were on what I wrote. And I was like, wow, this is great. You know, so the truth of the matter is you can do well on anything you want to. It, it's all up to what you apply yourself to. Last question before I get you out of here so we can both go about our uh, production days, we'll call them. What's the weirdest thing you ever had to cover? Oh, boy. I once covered a, a fr professional Frisbee championship. Um, and this was in my early days at Newsday. I, was, I, was in, I wasn't an intern, I was a part-timer. And they said, would you go cover this thing for us? So, yeah, what the heck? I was at a high school gym on the island. I don't remember where. But uh, it was these dudes and they, um, they, had, they had like fake fingernails and fake toenails that they could spin the Frisbees on. It was really very, very impressive. But I didn't know what the hell to write about this. It was very, very interesting. And I've never seen it again since then. But I, I can't imagine that I've covered anything that approaches that for, uh, for strangeness. Funny enough. I remembered that you telling that story and that's how I teased you coming on the podcast on the episode that's coming out the day before this, that you, you got stuck covering a Frisbee tournament. Yes. I actually remember that. Yeah. And when I, when these guys like had these fake nails on and <laughs> them to spin it, you know, it was one thing on the fingers, but on the feet too, it was like, wow, this is, these guys are really into this. Yeah. That was strange. And they also made me once cover um, a 12 year old tennis tournament on new year's morning at 7 a.m. <laughs> And I was in no shape for it. <laughs> I had no patience at all. Uh, I was rather hungover, and I don't. I would love to dig up that story and see what the heck I wrote. Thank you so much for coming on. This was fun. This is, yeah, it was great. This is the kind of thing I want to do. Just kind of when I'm not talking to people, going through the psychosis about their team, tell stories <laughs> about interesting people. You gotta see, man. I I, I just go on. I'm looking through people's social medias like this person seems like they're a bit out there. Let me come talk to them and see how much they want to complain and yeah, get a lot of responses. It leads to interesting stories. A I lot of people that, care. You know, it's, it's tough to tell whether social media has made people more, you know, fans more crazy 
or if we just know more about it now because it's all out there. But I mean, fans are as crazy as ever. I, I think they're more crazy now. I mean, any because we can connect with each other. That's the other thing. It's that's like, the other. That's right. Misery loves company. Absolutely. It's the same thing with it's the same thing with the wackaloons on you know who are you know in insurrecting against the government. That's, that's the right. They all find the, the internet is a great way for them all to find each other. Yeah, it's I forget. I forget who, there's a stand-up comedian, he has a bit where it's like, America was in the dark for 30 years in a bar, and then the internet came, and that was last call, and the lights came on, and then we all kind of looked at each other, and oh, this is who we've been living with for the last 270 yep. years? It's, yeah. It's frightening. It, but I mean, really, I mean, the, the, like the criticism, like even like the Sealski thing, the fact that so many fans, um, you know, piled on him is because fans are crazy now. They really, they see themselves as part of the team and they see any criticism as, as an attack on them. It's nuts. See, I look at it from the other way. It's, I am a fan of the team. I want them to do better. You should be criticizing them more. That, yeah, that's also not, as a news you're, that's because you're That's because you're a journalist also. Yeah. yeah. You know? And, I, and also, you know, and you're going to find this out as you go further in this business, there's a lot of jealousy among yeah. fans toward you because they think that you, you're getting to do what I wish I could do. You're going to the games for free every night. You know, they don't realize the kind of work that goes into it. You know, the kind of shit you got to put up with, you know, the grind of the travel and how poorly you get paid. Yeah. You know, all these people. And I told, I said this in the class, I said, you're going to meet people who are much richer than you are going to say they wish they had your job. And you're going to say, no, you know, no, you don't, you know, you wish you had my job, but no, you don't. That's a good note to wrap things up on. Just plug your Twitter and you working on anything. I am. Well, actually, you know what I'm doing now? I'm working for the Department of Health as a contact tracer. Oh. Yeah. I've been doing that for eight months now, since the beginning of the pandemic. And I'll tell you what, journalistic background has helped tremendously. Yeah. Helps it's me the same skills. people, helps me organize everything. Um, it's been really good. Really enjoyed it. I, I, I mean, I'll probably never go back to sports writing at this point. Honestly. <laughs> That's a shame. I enjoy the sarcasm in your columns. Thanks. That's it's fine. hard to do. There's an yeah, important you know, line. This, is, this has been different because it shows me there's another world out there. There's more important things mm-hmm. than games, you know, yeah. dealing with people's lives, people who really need help, who want you to help. Uh, you know, I'm also, I am working on a book. I am working oh, on a book. Okay. That's what I like to hear. That's yeah. what I like to hear. What's the Twitter handle? I kind of shelved it while I've been doing this because I've been working really. Oh, Oyster Bay Bomber. Yeah. Wally's funny. I I still (laughs) remember like a week into your class, it was the the really shitty Super Bowl between the Rams and the Patriots. And you you had a 10 tweet series of tweets during the halftime of the Super Bowl where (laughs) I I had known you for a week and I was like, okay, he gets it. This is going to be a good class. (laughs) This is going to be a good class. Uh, well, I'm glad you liked the class. It was a good class. I learned how to think a little differently, which is like, you know, the whole point of going to college is learning how to Absolutely. think about things constructively. You're right. Yeah. That's exactly what it's for. So, all right. And I will see you guys tomorrow. UFC episode with one of my friends from college. He is a conventional journalist. He's written for a few local publications on Long Island. He's freelance writing. Mike Adams, we had a really long, in-depth talk about the health of the UFC as an organization and the major 
we'll say, I don't want to say viability issues because the UFC is not in trouble, but really good UFC talk. I will see you guys tomorrow.